Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Welcome to this episode of the Summit for Wellness podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about complex gut gut issues, GI issues, gastrointestinal issues. And we will be talking about autoimmunity and the gut-brain connection. Our guest is a first-class honors graduate and long-standing faculty member of the Institute of Holistic Nutrition. The cornerstones of his 13-year clinical career include holistic nutrition, functional medicine, and iridology, but has also done advanced courses in clinical detoxification, Ayurveda, energy medicine, and body talk. He specializes in resolving complex and chronic health conditions. He has been interviewed by CTV, Global TV, the Calgary Herald and Toronto Observer, and has done presentations for the National Women's Show, the Toronto Non-GMO Coalition, and the Canadian Society of Chinese Medicine and Acupuncture. Please welcome Brett Hawes to our show. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on the show and uh, really looking forward to you know, just getting stuck in today and talking about uh, complex GI issues and everything else that really uh, revolves around that. Yeah, we're excited to have you on the show. Uh, one of the things that kind of stands out to me is you are a faculty member of the His- Institute of Holistic Nutrition. Holistic seems to be one of those kind of buzzwords in the health industry nowadays. Can you go into detail what uh, holistic means and what the difference between a holistic nutritionist compared to a dietitian is? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of confusion surrounding both of those. And and you're absolutely right. Holistic is definitely become quite the buzzword. And I think that, um, you know, for me, there's a few sort of meanings as to what the word holistic really means. Um, the first one is, you, you know, really mind, body, soul. Uh, that That's the, you know, uh, pretty obvious one. But I find that not a lot of people really practice that way, um, you know, as practitioners or clinicians. Because most people, when it comes to health and wellness, are really focused on the physical aspects, or perhaps they're focused on the psychotherapy aspects, or perhaps they're focused on the the sort of spiritual um, side of things. So it's very rare to find um, someone that really encompasses all of those and addresses all of those in a clinical setting. So that's you know th- that's the big one. But then the other one, which is also uh, you know not a lot of people really get, is that. It's also looking at the whole body. So if we're just talking about you know holistic health and forget about the spiritual stuff and all of that for a minute, if you're talking about holistic, holistic really means looking at the whole body and really appreciating and respecting that everything is connected. And we're really going to be hopping into this today when we talk about digestion and how it's related to so many other things in the body, if not all. And so I find that that's really, you know, when you're talking about a dietitian versus a holistic, you know, nutritionist, um, that's really uh, the, the big difference there. You know, dietitians uh, definitely have a lot of training when it comes to food sciences and, you know, the, the chemistry of food and et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's a degree program. But what I find the area that they're lacking in is they're not very well trained at all when it comes to supplementation. They're not very well trained when it comes to looking at the interaction of, of you know, the body parts and how they work together. So that's really, you know, contrast that with holistic nutritionists, which are really taking into account all of that stuff. And especially, you know, holistic nutritionists or practitioners that are are good at what they do, they're actually going to be factoring in all of these things that we just discussed into their health programs that they make for people. 
So do you find in the medical uh, world when there's so many different specialties that that probably isn't really helping out people um, fully by because they're not really looking at the entire body. They're just looking at what they're specializing in. 100%. You know, I've actually maintained for a long time that the age of specialization has really done a lot of damage. And, you know, I, I, we obviously do need specialists uh, some of the time for sure. I'm not saying it's a bad thing entirely. But when we compartmentalize everything and when we view as the different parts, you know, the different parts of the body as isolated, you know, separate entities, you know, and we're going to be talking about this today, you know, you know, off the top of my head. Uh, looking at something like chronic ear infections in children, you know, it's well known that the literature and the research clearly shows that food allergies are a huge issue there. You know, just wheat and dairy right off the bat. And oftentimes the removal of those will clear up the chronic ear infections. But, you you know, you take the child to the ear ENT specialist and they're basically looking at just the ears and they have no training whatsoever in what's going on in the gut or food allergies or anything else. And not just that, I don't expect them to be trained. They don't even refer out. You know, we're not even we're not even considering it. It's not even in the in in the in view at all. So, yeah, I think it is a big issue. So for uh, like gastroenterologists who are focusing more on the gut health, do you think they're taking a more broader look at the entire system or are they more specialized just in that one section of the body too? I mean, in my experience, you know, I, most of my clients, because I deal with chronic and complex um, health issues, most of my clients have already gone, gone through the medical system. Oftentimes, I'm working alongside um, specialists and so on. And my experience has really shown that no, they are not. Um, definitely not. And I don't say this to be mean or anything. You know, it's just what their training is, right? But they they they're still you know with new research coming out now on things like microbiome and stuff like that i think that the tide is starting to turn a little bit but we also got to remember that if you're only trained in one area that's a special focus you really are talking about stepping outside of your scope when you start connecting the gut to also all sorts of other issues in the body so as much as i think you know um, gastroenterologists might be might be becoming aware of things are they actually putting that into practice? And I would have to say very few of them are. So you've been in practice for quite a few years, and you see a lot of these different chronic GI issues that probably a lot of these gastroenterologists would see. However, you're coming from a background where you take a look at the entire body. So what are some of the common patterns that you've observed just in your own clinical practice? Well, I mean, some of the of the common patterns, you know, some of the things that I do in terms of intakes and in terms of questioning people is I, I do, you know, in a lengthy, lengthy intake process where I, you know, go through symptoms across the entire body and not just the body, also the emotional, mental side of things as well, you know, the psychological aspects. And what I found is that, you know, one common pattern that I've really noticed is that most people who come in to see me with with chronic GI issues almost always have emotional and mental health issues as well. And there's, there's definitely a spectrum there. And, and I say mental health very loosely. You know, we're talking about things like um, mood swings, uh, depression, you know, foggy thinking, stuff like that. So there's definitely, you know, the gut-brain connection, as much as we're starting to sort of, you know, pick in and get into the literature now and a lot of the research is coming for me, I've really observed that almost since the beginning, 
And I remember some of my early cases where, you know, through iridology, uh, which is such a powerful tool, I would observe that the GI issues were really affecting the brain and people with bipolar disorder and all sorts of other issues, by working on the gut, the, 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 their uh, mental health would improve to the point where sometimes it would be completely resolved. So that, that's one, you know, very, very common pattern. Um, another common pattern that I've noticed is people with chronic pain. You, you know, whether that's muscle pain, whether it's joint pain, whatever it is, um, I almost always find that there is a GI component uh, going on there. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that when you start looking at it like this, you know, most practitioners and, dare I say, you know, doctors are really treating the symptoms. So we're treating the mental health issues, we're treating the joint pain, the muscle pain, whatever it is, and we're never ever resolving the root cause, which is really the GI stuff. And that's where I've actually enjoyed great success, and I've helped a lot of clients with that, is actually not even addressing the mental health issue at all and focusing solely on the gut and watching what happens. So can you go into details why the gut would influence all these different components within the body? Why is it kind of the central hub? Well, I mean, if you if you look back in time, what's interesting is, you know, science is now starting to catch up with what the ancients knew for thousands and thousands of years. When you start getting into things like Chinese medicine and talking about your qi, um, which is really your, your digestive fire, um, or your agni in Ayurvedic medicine, which is also your digestive fire, you know, we, we've known this for a long, long time that if your digestive fire is off, it basically compromises the entire body, right? And what we're starting to sort of discover now with more modern science is that there, you know, the, the GI tract is pretty much hardwired to the rest of the body through something called the enteric um, nervous system. And this is why, you know, by way of nervous system, it can really uh, interact with all parts of the body. But this is a lot of the research surrounding this is actually focused on this whole gut brain connection and how that affects the brain. Now, you know, just to sort of take that one step further, what we've now observed is that roughly 90% of serotonin is actually manufactured in the gut which is, is kind of crazy because serotonin is really a neurotransmitter or a brain hormone, if you will. And here we find that 90% of it is being synthesized and manufactured in the gut. What's also interesting is we found that the gut has 400 times more melatonin than the brain does. So again, another uh, you know, serotonin sort of opposite cousin there. And this is just one area. From an iridology standpoint, and this is very, very interesting, you know, we're obviously on a, on a podcast here, but um, I encourage anyone listening right now to go and, and just uh, look up, you know, a map of the eyes or iridology map, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The, what's interesting is the digestive tract is actually wrapped right around the pupil. So if you look at the eye, you'll see the, the stomach is right close to the pupil, and then one ring out from that is the small intestine and the bowel. And then what you have wrapped around those is the nervous system, or what's called technically the autonomic nerve wreath. And outside of that is essentially the rest of the body. And one of the sort of core principles of iridology is that whatever happens inside the gut affects the corresponding organ or tissue outside of that and the big connector there is that nervous system. So, you know, that's really it in a nutshell. But what's very interesting is, you know, we've got to bring the microbiome into the picture here. 
so much research now being connected or, or being done on the microbiome and mental health, the microbiome and immunity, um, you know, chronic disease, inflammation, all sorts of stuff now coming to the forefront. And of course, you know, this also has to be mentioned is that 70% of our immune system is actually in our gut. So if that is compromised, you're basically compromising your entire immune system uh, on a systemic level as well, which really opens the door to so many other um, health conditions. So let's talk about iridology a little bit. I've um, done tongue diagnosis in my own clinical practice, but I've actually never looked into iridology. Can you explain a little bit more about the map of the GI tract within the eyes and what you would be looking for um, to show you any signs that there's disruption in the GI tract? I mean, it's it's going to be very difficult to the untrained person to really get a good handle on things. So I think it might be better for me to really explain uh, on a fundamental level what iridology is and how it works, and then you can sort of take it from there. You know, the the, the eyes are have have been said to be you know the windows to the soul, um, but they're also a map to the body, and they're actually the only external organ, if you will that um, or the only nerve fibers I should say that come into contact with the outside world all of our other nerves are actually encased in our body uh, in our skin and our tissues and whatnot and so when you start looking at the anatomy what you'll see is your your brain you know is essentially the central hub as far as your nervous system goes and that then goes right down the spine and of course touches every single part of your body right and the interesting thing is that the eyes sit on two almost like stalks coming out of the brain. And so you can imagine every single area of the brain is hardwired to different parts of the body. And the eyes are really a reflection of what's going on inside in that manner. So really what you have in the eyes is you have about a million nerve fibers in each eye, which are reflexly hardwired to all of the other nerves in your body. And so what happens is once we start to see things like inflammation or tissue degeneration or toxicity and stuff like that, um, you know, essentially looking at sort of dark holes or darker patches in the eyes, that's really um, on a very basic level, that's how you would be evaluating what's going on in the body. And what's very interesting is you can actually tell different degrees of degeneration. So you can tell if something is hyperactive, you can tell if something is, um, you know, subacute or chronic and to what degree. So iridology is really good in that sense where it's a very, very powerful, non-invasive analytical tool, but it's not going to tell you things like what is your, you know, what are your cholesterol levels or what is your blood pressure? You know, it's not a, it's not a quantitative um, diagnostic tool at all. And, and this is precisely why I use it in conjunction with the holistic nutrition and the functional medicine, because it's really, really, you know, it sort of guides me a little more on maybe what sort of labs I want to order. Um, you know, when you combine that with symptom, symptomatology and what's going on in the body there, it really is a lot of confirmation. Um, and sometimes you can also see things that you might not have thought of as well. And I've just found that the more confirmation that you have and the more evidence that you have, the more confident uh, clients are in terms of where they're heading. And, and also, I mean, makes you confident as a practitioner in terms of what you're coming up as far as a treatment plan goes. So it seems as people start to age and get into their 40s and 50s, a lot of times um, their eyesight starts to go out and they might need glasses or they might need laser eye surgery or whatnot. And 
also in this period of their life, a lot of times their digestive juices aren't flowing as well as they used to when they were younger. So is the reason that the eyesight and the issues with the eyes, is that coming from their digestive system not being able to break down foods properly so they have the correct nutrients for the eyes? Or is there a connection between iridology and the GI tract in that way? Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say there's a connection, you know, strictly from an iridology sense. Um, You know, iridology is really looking at the iris. It's not looking at the pupil. And obviously the pupil is where, you know, that's where your lens is and that's where you're going to see. But one thing that, you know, could be a connection here, you know, there's there's obviously many reasons why eyesight might fail or cataracts develop, uh, you know, glaucoma and stuff like that. Um, and from a digestive perspective, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, you, you could definitely not be breaking down and absorbing the nutrients, uh, particularly things like vitamin A and selenium, which are, are so um, vital for, for healthy eyes. Uh, so that might be one connection there, but I think you really need to look at the whole picture when it comes to failing eyesight and aging. Okay, that's good to know. So let's talk a little bit more about um, the gut. And one of the other big buzzwords out in the industry right now is leaky gut. So can you talk about what Mm -hmm. leaky gut is and what that is doing to the body? Okay, so yeah, leaky gut is definitely a a big buzzword. Um, You know, a lot of misperceptions there. And, you know, in teaching students, uh, when, you know, they, they show a lot of signs and symptoms, automatically people assume that they have leaky gut or will read books about leaky gut where, you, you know, you'll see things like food allergies, gas and bloating. Um, and, you know, those are some of the common signs and symptoms. But, um, you know, the truth of the matter is that not everyone who has those symptoms actually has leaky gut. And... You know, the reason why I say that is because the the treatment and the length of treatment is extremely um, long. It's very, very difficult as well. So I don't think that everyone should be embarking on a full leaky gut program if they don't actually need to do that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what leaky gut actually is and why people think they might have it. So first of all, leaky gut, we're really talking about the small intestine here. And the small intestine serves uh, two or three primary sort of functions. The first one is the digestion and absorption of food and nutrients. The second one is intestinal immunity, um, which is really 70% of our overall immune system. And then the third one is a protective barrier. And so really what we're talking about with leaky gut is we're talking about this, the lining of the small intestine getting damaged. And when that gets damaged, what we can see is little gaps in the, in the lining of the intestine, little holes in the lining of the intestine. And this really paves the way now for anything that really should not be in the bloodstream, it will get into the bloodstream. You know, the small intestine is really an interface between the external world and the internal world in the body. It's really one of the only ways that something from the outside can get inside the body, apart from going through the skin or actually breathing it in. And so when that barrier becomes compromised and we can't keep these, you know, these pathogens or whatever it is out of the bloodstream and they start getting into the bloodstream, this really sets off a huge cascade effect, which can involve many, many other parts of the body. Uh, Some issues that have been associated with leaky gut include things like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, lupus, uh, pretty much all autoimmune conditions. Uh, things like joint pain, right? And the list goes on. There's really an extensive list that's been associated with that. 
So some of the common causes of leaky gut, you know, one of some of the big ticket items here are bacterial and viral infections, which can really be things like yeasts, um, E. coli, all sorts of other stuff like that. We're also talking about food allergies, which are huge. Food allergies, sensitivities, intolerances, whatever that is. Um, those can all be involved and usually are involved in cases of leaky gut. In my experience, I've also noticed that there is a huge stress component, a massive stress component in pretty much everyone that I've ever dealt with with this uh, issue. Um, you know, that's sort of it in a nutshell. But here's the thing. When you start getting into the medical literature and the medical training, what you're going to see is that there is actually no mention of leaky gut syndrome at all. Um, it is not officially classified as a disease or an illness. It is not spoken about in um, medical school at all. And this is really sad because a lot of people are getting diagnosed with other things or their symptoms are being treated. Meanwhile, it's leaky gut that's actually underlying the whole, uh, you know, their whole health picture. Okay. Now, I can tell you that it is a very real thing, and I know that because I've actually run functional lab tests to detect this. There are some awesome lab tests out there that can definitively show things like intestinal inflammation, uh, suppressed or overactive intestinal immunity, obviously food allergies and sensitivities, um, but you know, can actually tell you that the gut is for sure leaky. And I find that you know, once you run those tests and you have that definitive proof, your clients or patients, you know, they automatically go, okay, well, this is it. Like, I know that that's what's going on, and we now need to take measures to fix that. A typical treatment involves quite a strict regimen as far as diet goes and supplement goes. And while you can see symptomatic relief in as little as three to four days, to fully resolve the issue could take anywhere from six months to two years, depending on how severe the situation is. So that's really it in a nutshell. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that, Brian. So you mentioned some lab tests that you do. What are some of the actual names of those tests if people are interested in looking more into um, either asking for those tests or getting them done themselves? Sure. So um, one of the tests, which is, you know, you can get this through uh, many labs, is what's called a lactulose mannitol test. So lactulose and mannitol are really uh, undigestible sugars. And the idea is that you drink a sugar solution and then a certain amount of time afterwards you measure your urine. And if the gut is not leaky, you should not see anything in the urine. If it is, you know that it has to pass, it had to have passed through a leaky gut in order to get there. So that's really a, a, a very clear um, yes, no sort of answer. And then you start getting into other things like zonulin, which is to date the only known sort of physical modulator of intestinal imperme uh, or permeability, if you will. Um, groundbreaking research uh, over the last few years into zonulin. So there's tests now that can check for that. Um, th those are sort of the big ones. Um, you know, even running comprehensive digestive stool analysis will give you a very, very good picture into overall digestion. And some of the markers there, such as lysozyme or calprotectin, uh, can really get, be a strong indicator of chronic intestinal inflammation. And when you sort of couple that with a lot of the signs and symptoms that you're showing and a complete health history, it gives you a, a pretty good picture of what's going on there. So let's say I have leaky gut. What happens within my body when I have all these foods and nutrients leaking out into my system? What does my system do to it? 
So basically, you know, as I said before, your your gut is that interface between and the, really that protective barrier between the outside world and your inside world. And so there's certain things that should remain in the gut and the gut lumen and essentially pass out through the stool. And then there's other things that we obviously want to get from our food um, so that we can get them into the body. And the problem with leaky gut is that there's no discernment as to what's what anymore. Right? There's no selective barrier, if you will. It's really everything just passes right through. And so what really happens is your immune system identifies a lot of these things as foreign. You know, you can imagine if you have a bacteria that normally resides in the gut and everything is good and it's normally supposed to be there, you know, the immune system keeps that in check. But as soon as that gets into the bloodstream, that's a red flag to the immune system and it says, hey, you know what, I have to now attack the bacteria, I have to attack whatever it is. And the same thing holds true for food particles. So undigested food particles, um, you know, things like food additives. There's so many different things in our food these days. You know, I think the last I saw was uh, something like 30,000 different chemicals used in food production these days. You know, so once all of these start getting into the body, what starts to happen is the immune system, you know, essentially freaks out. And it now has to police all of these different things because we've lost gut barrier function. What this does is it uh, initially is going to put the immune system in a hyper response state. So we're on high alert, which typically results in people reacting or overreacting to many different things. What can happen after that is the immune system can then get suppressed and you now start talking about more chronic issues. Um, you know, your autoimmune conditions, uh, things like cancer and whatnot. Um, those are obviously, you know, they take many years to develop. Uh, but that's that's really what's going on um, in a nutshell. The other thing that's very interesting regarding autoimmune conditions, you know, there's a couple of theories there. And one is that, you know, we have these undigested food particles and food food proteins more specifically. I want to be clear on that. And when you have these undigested food proteins that leak into the bloodstream, you have very, very similar amino acid sequences or protein sequences that make up your body. And so that theory says that your immune system will attack the food particles or the undigested proteins, but it's also going to attack similar tissues in the body, which now, you're again, you're talking about things like Hashimoto's, MS, lupus, um, rheumatoid arthritis, and a whole host of others. But what's interesting is a lot of new research is suggesting that maybe that is not the case and that perhaps what's really happening is that viruses are entering through the in, through the intestine through a leaky gut and they're actually burying themselves in different body tissues and so what's happening is the immune system is attacking the viruses but as a consequence the tissue that it's being housed in is also getting damaged as well and a lot of research coming now on things like Hashimoto's particularly where chronic viral infections are huge implications there. But the question becomes, how did they get there? And uh, again, a lot of the research is pointing towards leaky gut. That's really fascinating about the autoimmunity. So if it is a, a virus or something similar that's buried itself into these different tissues, how do you pull it out of there so that you can fight it and get it out of the system? Yeah, and that's really the challenge. You know, we're, we're sort of, um, I think, in our infancy when it comes to that type of research. 
there are definitely antivirals on the market. Um, that's for sure. Like I have, you know, a couple of tools that I use in my own practice that are very, very powerful antiviral supplements. Um, but yeah, you're correct. You know, if something is buried deep in the tissue, you know, the, the question now becomes, can the, those antivirals actually get there? And I sort of sit on the fence with that. I think that one of the one of the the first and most important steps, you know, with regarding autoimmunity is to remove all of the triggers. You know, if your immune system is freaking out and it's going after all of these things, the best thing you can do is to minimize as many of the triggers as you can. And one of the best ways you can do that is to really clean up the intestinal environment. You know, so if there's bacterial or viral infections in the gut, get rid of that. If there is leaky gut going on, you know, really seal up that barrier and strengthen it again. And what you're going to find is the immune system is not actually going to become as overactive. Because the truth of the matter with most viruses is viruses will remain in the body in a dormant state. And it's only when you are under a lot of stress or your body's really depleted or possibly the immune system is overactive that the viruses are going to become very, very active and start causing that damage. So, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, I wish I had a, a more of a clearer answer there for you. But as I said, this re- sort of research is really in its infancy these days. Well, the better the body is never very clear. So, yeah, if only it was right. I mean, I think it would make all of our jobs a lot easier if we just had the proverbial smoking gun um, and just sort of wipe out that one thing and everything's great. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about um the neurological issues again you talked about uh, serotonin and melatonin being um, created more in the gut than in the actual brain can you talk more about um, are there other different neurotransmitters in the body that are more formed within the gut than in the actual brain itself well it's hard to say I mean you know obviously because of that enteric nervous system and being hardwired to to the the brain it's really tricky because when you really start getting into into the chemistry of it all, uh, you know, some things might be produced in the gut, especially because, you know, most neurotransmitters, in fact, I think all of them have amino acids as a backbone. So you really have to break down the proteins from your food and get those amino acids into the bloodstream. But from there, when you start talking about amino acid synthesis and neurotransmitter metabolism, um, a lot of that actually happens in the brain but it can also happen outside of the brain as well. And so again, you know, when it comes to gut brain issues, oftentimes, and I tell my clients this all the time, is we're dealing with a chicken and egg situation. You know, where is it, um, uh, you know, was it the brain first? Was it more of a mental, emotional standpoint first? Or was it more of a gut issue first? And I can tell you right now from, you know, interviewing lots of people, most people don't know. It's very, very difficult to pinpoint. One thing I will say, though, from a gut standpoint, which is very, very interesting, is when you start um, looking at uh, serotonin and dopamine, epinephrine and norepinephrine, so when you start looking at their metabolism, what's very interesting is uh, chronic bacterial infections can actually block the metabolic pathways. And so, uh, you know, and I can see this very clearly on something called an organic acids test. So an organic acids test is a very, very comprehensive test. And one thing that it does show is it shows for elevated bacterial markers, um, usually in the small intestine, which is kind of what we're talking about here. And uh, things like clostridia is a big one. 
And so when clostridia levels are elevated, oftentimes what you'll see is you will see compromised conversion of uh, dopamine and epinephrine and, and norepinephrine, which then of course leads to you know things like anxiety, um, irritability, potentially um, depression, and basically anything else that those neuro uh, you know focus, uh, ADD, concentration issues, memory issues, so all of that kind of stuff as well. I have found that oftentimes there's a bacterial issue um, lurking underneath. There's a saying out in our industry, and there's a lot of books and articles coming out about this, that um, it's leaky gut, leaky brain. And it seems like um, there's a lot of truth to that, that when you do have a leaky gut, there is a lot of uh, permeability in the brain barrier as well. Is that what you've seen in your clinical practice as well? I mean, yes and no. I, I think that uh, there's, I, I definitely don't dispute the fact of, of a leaky brain at all. Um, I just, you know, the, the blood-brain barrier is such a tight barrier that there's very few things that are going to compromise that. And I, I think that, you know, I, just to sort of my do my due diligence, I would rather say, you know, leaky gut, leaky brain, depending on what the cause of the leaky gut is. Because I don't think you can attribute all cases of leaky gut as having the same root cause or the same pathology. Um one thing that does, uh, which is very interesting, one thing that does actually cause the brain to become, or that blood-brain barrier to become a lot more leaky, is um, is something like MSG is a huge one, and also hypoglycemia, so blood sugar issues. Um, you know, once the once the body is in a hypoglycemic state, the blood-brain barrier actually becomes compromised, and now other things can get into the brain. And so this is why, um, you know, things like aspartame, for example, and MSG as food additives are just so brutal for, for brain health and for mental health. Do you have any uh, quick ways to test the blood-brain barrier to see if it is leaking? I actually don't, um, to, to be honest. And I don't know of any tests that are out there that definitively will evaluate that. So, Again, I know that there are people looking into that, but uh, it's it's a little bit enigmatic because I'm not exactly sure what markers you would be looking for, and I guess short of actually you know surgically going in there to have a look, uh, I'm not really sure that you'd be able to evaluate that. Have you ever heard of the GABA test? I have heard of a GABA test. It's not something that I use, so I'm not 100% sure exactly what it's about. So GABA itself um, is too large to go through the blood-brain barrier, but... If you do have a leaky blood-brain barrier, then if someone takes GABA, they usually have some kind of um, reaction. Either it makes them really sleepy or it might um, energize them. So if you have someone take GABA right before bed, then it can and have them tell you if it doesn't make any changes to their body, then that can give you an idea whether there's a a leak in the blood-brain barrier or not. Huh, okay. Yeah, I mean that's um, definitely definitely interesting, and uh, it's still it does sound a little bit you know more of like a home home sort of test, which is great for some things. I just uh, for me personally, I'm not quite sure that I would want to base my um, you know diagnostics or analysis on on something like that. That's just me though. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're absolutely correct in terms of being um, at least giving you some sort of idea. You know, the next question becomes, how do you actually tighten up the blood-brain barrier? And that's uh, that, that's a topic that I think we'll have to leave for another time. <laughs> yes, that's a complicated topic yes, right indeed, there. indeed, indeed. So what are um, some of your key steps to restoring proper gut barrier function? 
So there's definitely a sort of systematic approach, if you will. And what I find is that what most practitioners do, and I teach this to my students a lot, most practitioners will go right off the bat and they will try and strengthen the gut. And they'll say, hey, you know what? The gut's leaky. I'm going to build the gut. And what I always say to them is you can't build on top of a poor foundation. You, you know, if you've got this battlefield going on where there's food allergy, allergies, there's pathogens, there's bacteria or yeast or whatever it is going on in there, you are not going to be able to rebuild the gut until you sorted that out. So one of the first um, steps that I would take, first of all, is actually to test and to see whether you have leaky gut or not. So that, that, that's a good one. And potentially run some of those other tests, whether it's a comprehensive stool uh, analysis or something to that effect, and get a, a better sense of what's actually going on. Step two is definitely removing. So, you know, removing if it's yeast, if it's pathogens, um, you know, getting, getting that sorted out and getting those levels down. Uh, another key step here is identifying and eliminating food allergies and food sensitivities. You know, remember that any time you've got leaky gut, there's, the immune system is compromised for sure. You've got a lot of inflammation going on down there, and your digestion is probably not working as well. And so anything you can do to minimize the load, to really lighten the load on that, that's a real key first step. And so removing those food allergens, pathogenic bacteria, whatever that is, and then, of course, at the same time, strengthening the digestion um, you know, through digestive enzymes, uh, whether it's hydrochloric acid or bile or, or any type of digestive enzyme, those are, are also key fundamental steps there. Um, you know, once you sort of cleared out the pathogenic bacteria, definitely getting probiotics into the mix. And then at that point, really working on fortifying and strengthening that, uh, you know, that intestinal barrier. Um, two of the sort of big nutrients, which I'll just, you know, throw out there. Uh, one is L-glutamine, uh, which is an amino acid. And another one is N-acetylglucosamine. Those two nutrients together have been shown to stimulate epithelial growth on the in, in the intestinal membrane and really to strengthen and rebuild that gut but that part takes a long time all right you know i, I get clients that call me after you know two or three months of being on that program and they'll start to veer off track and they'll notice that some of those signs and symptoms come back and that's a clear sign that you haven't really got to that point yet where you've really fixed the the barrier so um, another key component here, so apart from all of the physical stuff, is really uncovering, um, you know, uncovering the the stress aspect, the emotional psychological aspect, and if there's a lot of underlying tension and stress, really taking measures to try and reduce that. Um, you know, obviously things like adrenal support and stress support can go a long way here in helping to balance things out, like cortisol and and whatnot. And so I think that that, when you put that all together, you've really got a very well-rounded um, approach. From a dietary perspective, um, the, the diet, especially initially, is a very, very radical diet where you are essentially going on a low-carbohydrate diet and a high-fat diet, you know, which is also becoming hugely popular for all sorts of other things now. But really, that's, that, that's the focal point, is, um, is, is that type of diet. And when you combine it all together, you will notice very, very quick results in terms of symptomatic relief. Um, I've had clients where, um, you know, they were literally passing out and, uh, you know, fainting, blackouts and stuff like that. And that all got cleared up in a matter of two or three days. 
Um, I've had a lot of clients with really, really intense and chronic joint pain and muscle pain uh, that can go away in as little as three or four days. Um, but as I said in the beginning of, of our um, session here, you know, the important thing is to stick with it and to realize that to really, really get the job done, you're looking at six to 24 months. When you're taking someone that's been on a low-fat diet for a long time and you're switching them over to a lower-carb, higher-fat diet, have you noticed that um, they may need more liver support or gallbladder support in order to start breaking down the fats because their body hasn't been used to uh, breaking down fats in quite some time? Um, it, it really depends on the person, you know, because you, you are, you know, conversely, um, you might also say that because they haven't been eating lots of fats, they haven't really stressed their liver or gallbladder out because the gallbladder hasn't had to produce uh, lots of bile and, and that. So, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword there when you look at it. But in my experience, you, you know, when you're going on this sort of low-carb, higher-fat diet, really what you're doing is you're changing the fuel in the body. And what that means on a mitochondrial level is you're now starting, and, and a, on a Krebs cycle level, is you're starting to burn fats for energy uh, more than burning carbohydrates. So I think that the the boost in energy and the way that people feel, plus a lot of those carbohydrates, you know, when you start getting into grains, especially um, grains can be very, very antagonistic to, um, to, to leaky guts and to food allergies and whatnot. And so I find that, you know, overall, if, if you sort of did a net, net result here, what I found personally that by lightening the load on overall digestion, people don't have as much of an issue with just focusing on one nutrient, which would be fat. So that's just my experience. But obviously, you do get the odd case where they have a compromised liver or gallbladder. And in that case, absolutely, yes, uh, you would focus your digestive support and enzymes a little bit more on that, which would be things like your lipase or lipase enzyme. Awesome. Good to know. So you mentioned probiotics, which seems to be the new fish oil within the health industry. It seems like everybody's mm -hmm. prescribing probiotics. Is there a right time or a wrong time to take probiotics, or is that something you can take all the time whenever you choose? I mean, you know, the, the truth of the matter is this, right? You know, we've identified 400 different strains of probiotic in the gut. Now, that's obviously someone who has a very, very wide, um, broad spectrum, but at least, let's say, you, you're, you know, you got 300. And the most comprehensive probiotic that I've found on the market has 29 different strains. So probiotics are a little bit like shooting in the dark. Um, the, again, the research on, there's definitely some research on your bigger strains and what they do. But overall, you know, if you consider you got three, three or 400 strains in the gut and you're throwing down 29 at the most, you know, a lot of probiotic supplements are only two two to four to five strains so it is a little bit like shooting in the dark but you also have to remember that there are some of these sort of colonizing strains your lactobacillus and your bifido um, bacterium a lot of you know those are the big strains there that actually will take up residence in the gut and so i think that you know coming back to your question here is you know, first of all, there's no danger in taking probiotics. They're either going to do something or they're not going to do anything. So, so you know, at very least, you're going to be wasting money. Um, but when it comes to cases of leaky gut or inflammatory bowel disease or chronic digestive issues, you know, I've actually found that introducing probiotics um, in, in the beginning can be a little too intense for people. You know, I've had a lot of clients where those good bacteria are really crowding out the bad bacteria at such a rate that they, um, 
that the die off is just too intense for people, which tells me that they work. You know, you know, they they de- they definitely work. Now, in the healthy individual, you know, that's another question, and I this is a question that I ask all of my students. Um, you know, when we talk about probiotics, I always say, okay, so everyone here who's taken probiotics, and you know, obviously everyone puts up their hand, and I say, how many of you noticed a big difference when you took them? And half the class drops their hand. So what that says to me again is probiotics are a little bit like shooting in the dark, and it's almost like it's almost like taking out life insurance, you know, where they're not going to do any harm, but are they really benefiting you? I think it really boils down to the individual. Um, what I typically do for myself is I usually cycle probiotics, so I'll buy different strains, I'll take them, I'll have periods where I don't take any probiotics at all, because you know what most people have also forgotten is that you can get way more um, numbers and also bioavailable organisms through fermented foods, which people often forget. You know, we're, we want to take pills, 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 but sauerkraut, for example, has been shown to have the most bioavailable. Um, you know, lactic bacteria that you would find in the food world. So, um, you know, hopefully that answers the question. Um, but yes, definitely very, very um, lots of misinformation out there. And uh, I think that, yes, it has become very, very, very much of a buzzword. The gut microbiome is a very extensive topic that we could chat for hours about. However, we are out of time. So, Brett, where can people find you on the Internet? Yeah, so you can, um, you know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. You can find me as Brett Hawes, uh, Holistic Health Practitioner. Uh, You'll see my professional page there. And uh, I would love for you to connect there. Um, You know, drop me a message, whatever whatever it is you want to do. That would be great. Uh, I find that I go through periods of being very active on Facebook and then obviously not being so active. And that's just due to um, clinic schedule, teaching schedule, and, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I'd love for you to connect with me however you want. Um, you can send me an email at brett at bretthaws.com um, or alternatively just um, you know connect with me on Facebook. Thanks, Brett, for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. You brought a lot of information forward about uh, GI issues, which is a huge issue um, in our world right now. Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, you know, just to wrap things up, I found it to be a, a real central issue for so many other things. And my, my one piece of advice to you would be, you know, fix the digestive system, fix the gut first, and then see what else is going on in the body. You know, trying to treat all of the other things, whether it's autoimmune disorders, whether it's mental health issues, anything like that, what you're going to find is that you're really treating the symptom and you're not ultimately treating the root cause. Thank you, Brett, for those words of wisdom. If you would like to find out more information about Brett, go to bretthaws.com. And if you are a health practitioner, Brett has released his Holistic Health Masterclass for practitioners only. And we need more holistic practitioners out in this world. This program is designed to help you get started and succeed in this industry. And we have so many people that need your help out there. So take a look at Holistic Health Masterclass. Uh, Holistic-health-masterclass.com. So Holistic Health Masterclass is what it's about. Perfect. And you can go check that out. We will have another episode of the Summit for Wellness podcast next week. So stay tuned. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and subscribe to our channel at iTunes or Google Play or wherever you're listening. And we will see you guys next time. You have been listening to the Summit for Wellness podcast. 
If you are ready to climb to the peak of your health, visit summitforwellness.com for more information. As you continue on your journey, we hope that you will join us next time on the Summit for Wellness podcast.